to thank you all for your reverence and patience during the administration of the sacrament. Um, our first speaker today, Brother James Jones, uh, is leaving us soon, but I'll let him, I don't know if he's going to reference that, we're sad to see him go. Following his remarks, I will listen to an intermediate hymn, number 308, Love One Another, after which we'll be pleased to hear from Brother Jared Pence and proceed to that point. family. Um, my name is James Jones. I've uh, been in the greater Boston area for about uh, eight years or so. Eight years today, I think, actually, is when I actually arrived in Boston and uh, started the search for housing. Um, not a great experience, obviously, but, you know, I'm here. We made it. It's, uh, it's great. I've been in this ward for about uh, two and a half of those years. I moved here from, from Utah uh, to sing, sing in an a cappella group, which I did full-time for about six years. Now I am a uh, voice actor, a podcaster, and up until a few days ago, I was a radio announcer at the local classical radio station. Uh, this past Monday, I added the title of grad student to my list of identifiers, um, having officially returned to school after a decade of avoiding it. I'll be attending a school called uh, Union Theological Seminary in, in uh, New York City, where I hope to simply become a better theologian because nobody goes into the studies of theology for the money. You either become an academic or you become clergy. I don't plan on doing either of those things. I don't know what I'm doing, but, um, you know, as uh, David A. Bednar once referenced in his talk, sometimes when the Spirit prompts us to move, uh, we don't really see the area around us. Sometimes the area is cloudy and we can't see any further than the uh, next step. All I'm trying to do is merely take the next step and uh, hope for the best. But the school is um, the institutional expression of my identity as a disciple of Christ. And uh, that is easily my most important identity. So I feel uh, very privileged for the opportunity to, to go there. I was a bit of a loss, at a bit of a loss to determine what I wanted to speak on today. I, I didn't feel particularly pressed or inspired to speak on anything in particular. Uh, and knowing how much I tend to stress about preparing talks, I've taken my heart rate about three times since I got in the room. It's about 30 ticks higher than it ought to be. And uh, I, I hope that communicates how seriously I take this opportunity and how much I appreciate the opportunity. Um, but I wanted to make sure that I talked about the right stuff, that I was able to speak the truth and love to whatever I would need to uh, speak to. I accepted the invitation to speak, though, feeling pretty good that, uh, that an opportunity or a lesson would present itself uh, during the course of my studies or during the course of my general living. And even if it didn't, there are surely principles of the gospel 
that I could talk about for any length of time, as those who attend Sunday school with me could attest to. Also, uh, Amanda, Christine, if you guys are listening or here, I apologize. I'm also sorry to anybody else who has to share the room with me in those situations. But sure enough, lessons didn't manifest themselves uh, during this year of a week that we had in Mormonism. This week, I have been left to left to ponder what discipleship looks like in the context of a uh, marginalized, marginalized community's pain. And I've been left to ponder how I live into that discipleship as a member of an institution that definitionally and functionally is hostile to those communities. And while the answers to me are relatively simple, they are still uncomfortable, difficult, and uh, particularly costly to those of us who would call ourselves disciples. Nonetheless, that seems to be the story of much of Jesus' life, and uh, we are commanded to be like him. Even this week, we are serendipitously studying Doctrine and Covenants section 93. It says in verse 19, uh, we learn in verse 19 that uh, we are given the sayings in verse 93 that we may know how to worship and what we worship. I was struck by the first part of that statement and very interested in the uh, specificity that was to be presented later in these verses. I couldn't immediately recall another time in our scriptures where we are explicitly told how to worship. But anyway, it seems that the primary way we are taught to worship, at least in the case of Doctrine and Covenants section 93, is by emulation. After learning that the Savior became who he is by receiving grace for grace in this section, we are also commanded to take certain steps that we might also receive grace for grace and be glorified in Christ as he is in the Father. Though the command to be like Jesus uh, certainly appears elsewhere in the scriptures, that we're explicitly instructed to embrace it as an act of worship adds a whole other dimension to uh, the commandment to be like Jesus. Elder Bruce R. McConkie once taught that, that quote, perfect worship is emulation. We honor those whom we imitate. The most perfect way to worship is to be holy as Jehovah is holy. It is to be pure as Christ is pure. It is to do the things that enable us to become like the Father, close quote. This becomes a little tough with regard to our queer brothers and sisters, our queer siblings, because we literally have no record of Jesus dealing with this community or talking about their particular issues. While one could say to simply follow the prophets and to listen to the brethren, I certainly do, I certainly do not have that luxury as a black member of this church. Before 1978, the brethren said many things about black folks that the church now disavows, including the original reason stated for the priesthood and temple restrictions by Brigham Young in February of 1852. Reasons like, being the seed of Cain, being less righteous in the pre-existence, and other falsehoods that justified the social and spiritual dispossession of my people for 126 years that we still feel to this day, and is also evidenced by the lack of melanated individuals in this room. Now that isn't to say, that isn't to say that we shouldn't listen to the brethren, but rather that we are allowed to prove their words, as was taught to us in last week's Come Follow Me, when we learned how we should read the Apocrypha, as was taught to us with Moroni's promise in Moroni chapter 10, and as was taught to us by, ironically enough, Brigham Young himself, when he stated, quote, 
If we, meaning the brethren, should get out of the way and lead this people to destruction, what a pity it would be. How can you know whether we lead you correctly or not? Can you know by any other power than that of the Holy Ghost? I have uniformly exhorted the people to obtain this living witness each for themselves. Then no man can lead them astray. Close quote. No prophets, ancient in, no prophets ancient or in these latter days have been or claimed to be perfect or infallible. That should prompt us to give them a lot of grace, as well as take our own spiritual development and theological education more seriously, which brings me back to Jesus. Because ultimately, my question that I seek to answer is what following Jesus looks like in the most urgent and important moments in our lives, there's an interesting problem here. If I am to follow the same Jesus who identified with those on the margins, the same Jesus who ignored religious laws and social conventions to do so, the same Jesus that kept company with the likes of tax collectors, the poor, the sick, the disabled, sex workers, and otherwise dispossessed, the Jesus who gave us the first and second great commandment to love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves, as well as the commandment to esteem our brothers as ourselves, if I am a disciple of that Jesus, what should my response to the otherization of my grieving queer siblings this week be in a space that professes to follow that same Jesus while simultaneously dispossessing them? Saying that aloud is a bit uncomfortable for me because the answer is uncomfortable to me. Immediately, the story of one of my biblical heroes, Paul, comes to mind as he found himself in this situation in Antioch. Antioch was an integrated church with diverse leadership and was basically the Christian capital of the world at this time. This particular situation is colloquially referred to as the confrontation in Antioch, and it occurs in Galatians chapter 2. It's one of my favorite stories, but also least favorite stories. Favorite because of Paul's courage, but I cringe a bit reading it because I can only imagine the tension of this moment and how awkward it must have been. It's very reminiscent of the times I used to go over to my friends' house when I, houses when I was younger, and I would listen to them get in a fight with their parents. And then there'd be like that brief moment of silence and tension where you're wondering to yourself, do I, do I, do I say something? Do we pretend this didn't happen? Or do I politely but awkwardly excuse myself? That's what I picture this situation, or at least being in the room of the situation to have uh, to have been like. Uh, but anyway, Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 is where Paul uh, sets up the story. It reads, quote, When Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. Close quote. And what did Peter's wonderful, impetuous, knuckleheaded self end up doing when he was in Antioch? In verse 12, Peter came into Antioch and dined with the integrated church with included Gentiles which included Gentiles. But Jews came to town, and Peter, the senior most apostle of the church, did not want to be seen eating with other Gentiles. So he excused himself. Not only that, but verse 13, the Jews, the other Jews present followed his lead, including Paul's right-hand man, Barnabas. That, that had to hurt Peter just a little bit. It was bad enough for Peter to act as he did, but that his act of dissimulation, which uh, is translated to hypocrisy, this act of hypocrisy 
encouraged others to act as he did. And that made this many times worse for reasons we don't really have time to unpack. Suffice it to say that even perfectly reasonable people can be carried away into acts of prejudice simply because their leaders engage in it too. Then come verses, verses 14 through 17, which is Paul's response to Peter's hypocrisy. Verse 14, but when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if thou being a Jew livest after the manner of Gentiles and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? Peter was trying to force the Gentiles to do something that he himself wasn't doing. That in and of itself, a significant analog to some things that are happening right now in this present moment. But what I want to focus on is the fact that Paul, a junior apostle, stood up to Peter, the senior apostle, and deferred not to his own rank, not to his authority, but to, quote, the truth of the gospel. And what truth was that? Paul teaches it poetically in the next chapter, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, quote, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus, close quote. These hierarchical boundaries based on immutable identity, Christ erased those. That's the truth Peter forgot in this moment of prejudice, and Paul reminded him. It's not even the first time Peter needed this reminder. Acts chapter 10, Peter had to be told multiple times to not call unclean what the Lord had cleansed and created. Now, Peter's mistake likely would have caused an ethnic schism in the church if Paul had never said anything. But Paul did say something. He did something very difficult and uncomfortable. And curiously missing from the story is how this confrontation concluded. But the fact that there was no ethnic schism in the church after this, and the fact that the church proceeded business as usual, indicates that there was a peaceful resolution. One more story worth mentioning at this point is the story of the Levite Uzzah, that dude who studied the ark and died because of it. Usually we only focus on that part of the story to basically discourage people from proverbially uh, studying the ark. However, what we don't acknowledge is that the reason the ark needed steadying in the first place was because David, who was in charge, did not transport the ark, the ark properly. He did not do it the way the Torah instructed, the way the Lord commanded. He did not seek the Lord's guidance in the transportation of the ark. Now, I assume that uh, Uzzah could have said something to David, considering David actually blames Uzzah's death of the Levites, on the Levites, for not telling him how to transport the ark, but he didn't. And he paid the price for his unwillingness to correct his superior as well as his superior's mistake with his life. Lessons from these stories are that deference to leaders and deference to the Lord are not always one and the same. In fact, in both of these stories, loyalty to one meant challenging the other. But the Spirit can give us wisdom to know when such situations are. And because Jesus is in the margins among those closest to the pain of our most pressing problems, we can bet that there is wisdom to be found there as well. Like I already said, Jesus identified so hard with those in the margins that he declared that our treatment of them, those on the margins, is our treatment of him. From a purely historical perspective, after all, marginalized groups usually seem to know better than those in the status quo what, what is best for themselves. It's probably why 
the apostles appointed, appointed seven Greek disciples to tend to the Greek widows in Acts chapter 6. Joseph Smith may have also followed this model himself when he got revelation about the law of consecration in Doctrine and Covenants section 83. When it originally came out, about a year prior to that, there was no provisions for orphans and for widows. But when section 83 came out over a year later, it is likely because he considered the needs of his friends Phoebe Peck and Anna Slade Rogers, two widows with children. Our texts are full of platitudes that affirm the Imago Dei, the image of God in all of God's children, especially the least of these. I love that most of the Beatitudes are addressed to these individuals so as to remind not just those individuals, but also all the others listening, that the least of these are entitled to blessings too. My favorite iteration of the Beatitudes is in Luke chapter 6, starting in about verse 20. Blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are ye that hunger now, for ye shall be filled. Blessed are ye that weep now, for ye shall laugh. The promises to those who otherwise are not typically understood to have the same or be entitled to the same blessings as the rest of this, of rest of us, Jesus guarantees to them through the Beatitudes. I have a testimony, family, that the work of affirming these people, affirming the marginalized, is real discipleship. It is the real work of our Savior. I bear testimony that though this work is difficult, that though this work is uncomfortable, though it is hard, that it is the work that we are called to do as disciples of Christ. I know that this is the Jesus that we worship, a Jesus that does hard things, a Jesus that affirms people who are not traditionally affirmed by those in society, and that if we live into that identity of Jesus Christ, we can truly emulate him, and so emulating him can truly worship him the way that we ought to worship him. I love this gospel. I love the Savior. I have a testimony of the atonement that gives us the tools we need to become better individuals, that gives us grace, that gives us opportunities to become the disciples that we are supposed to become, the disciples that Jesus wants us to become. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.